0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: Hey, all It's Jesse, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Maybe you have heard of me. A quick announcement. We're really excited to share it with you. We're going to be doing a very special live episode of Bullseye. It's going to be Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. What are you going to see? If you go... To Portland, Oregon, to see this show, you will see me live on stage talking with folks like Corin Tucker from Slater-Kinney, director Lance Bangs, writer Bill Oakley, Simpsons legend. Uh, We will also have live music from Roseblood and live comedy from Katie Wen. It's going to be a blast and a half. It's also part of a big podcast festival called Listen Up Portland. Tons of other great podcasts are playing at it, too. Our pals, the Doughboys, among others. So, again, that's Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at listenupportland.com. And thanks. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. (laughs) Jez Butterworth's latest play is on Broadway right now. It's his seventh, called The Ferryman. It's set during The Troubles the decades-long conflict over Northern Ireland that killed thousands. It tells the story of the Carney family, who live there in Derry. Authorities have just found the body of Seamus Carney, who's been missing for almost a decade. We find out early on that Seamus was killed by the IRA, and the family is now left to deal with the fallout of that event. The play is unique in a lot of ways. At one point, there are 21 actors on stage at the same time. One of them is an infant... You'll also see a live goose and a live rabbit. And I mean, it's remarkable. It's a visceral, unusual theatrical experience. Behind all that, though, the story shines through. It's about trauma and loss and revenge and all of the other consequences people encounter when they try to live their lives during conflict. Jez is a veteran writer of both stage and screen. He's written about a dozen films along with his plays. And you see that here. A younger playwright might have the same grand vision as Butterworth did for the production. But would they have the finesse and thoughtfulness to make it work? It's hard to say. Anyway, let's take a listen to Apart from the Beginning of the Play. This takes place in an alleyway. We see a man named Muldoon, who's a member of the IRA, interrogating a priest about the discovery of Seamus' corpse.
2: Do you know who I am? no. I'm gonna ask you some questions now and I just want you to answer how you feel is best, okay? Okay. Good. Do you know who I am? Yes. Seamus had a brother. An older brother. Yes. What's his name now?
0: His name is Quinn Carney.
2: What can you tell me about him? Quinn is a farmer. He farms 50 acres in the parish. He has a wife and a family. He's a good man. Was he always a farmer?
0: With respect, sir, what game are we playing here? Sure, everyone knows who Quinn Carney is, most of all, you.
2: You're his priest. Yes. He confesses to you. You hear his confession. Yes. Uh, Why don't you tell me everything you know about Quinn Carney?
1: Just better worth welcoming to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. So I imagine this must have been a subject matter that you took up with Trebidation as an English guy. Yeah, I think you'd be
0: right about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was... uh, Yeah, I did everything I could not to write it, really. Uh, Ideas for plays don't come along often enough for me to completely ignore them. But with this one, I did my best. It's just struck me as something of a a fool's errand. I mean, I don't think... Writers should, or any artist for that matter, should ring fence their imaginations, or you you wouldn't have. There's so much, you know, you wouldn't have so much art. But it still struck me as a, as a bad idea.
1: What were the things that you needed to be careful about?
0: Not to overstate it, four hundred years of of rolling um, discontent slash war between the two countries, and and you know, I took certain heart. Because you know, I'd really enjoyed a movie called *Hunger*, which a British filmmaker called Steve McQueen made. I thought it was fantastic, and I felt it, was, it felt authentic. And I also, at the end of the day, I, I do kind of have a sort of a, a, a screw it mentality, where it's like, well, if this story—I I, I thought it was a good one, I thought it was good, that it could work—and so it was—it's a chance I was I was willing to take. And to be honest with you, throughout the entire several different runs of the of the show on both sides of the Atlantic, there's been precious little uh, reaction to the fact that, I, that I'm English. Are you surprised by that? Yeah, I think so. I think that I was, I was kind of being sanguine about it, but kind of prepared for perhaps a bit more reaction. But then you kind of get it with everything. I wrote from the first play, I wrote, wrote it set in 1958 in Soho. And there was all kinds of old gangsters coming forward to do interviews with the Daily Mail saying it wasn't like that. It was almost like, I think we got off even lighter this time than than I did with that. Most of the plays I've written take place either in times or places where I have not personally existed.
1: The show concerns a man who has disappeared. He is one of what are called the disappeared in Northern Ireland. Can you tell me, for our listeners who don't know what
0: that is, what that is? Sure. In about, um, I think it was the early, very early seventies, the IRA switched from a program of murdering people who they thought had betrayed them from within their own organization. This is who had been informers or were suspected of being informers, and decided to start. Uh, disappearing them. So they'd be taken off into the you know, into the middle of nowhere, shot and put in an unmarked grave where only the people that did it knew where they where they were. And then in the ensuing weeks and months, they would send people to the families to say that that person had been spotted here or there, or getting on a ferry or at a racetrack, say. So to keep the idea that this person was alive to keep the hope alive and therefore short circuit the natural process of grief it was a it was a greater punishment in some ways
1: that act which frames the play is thematically essential to what you're doing dramatically which is trying to engage with that which is both
0: here and gone I think that's right. And, I, you know, it's it's like not allowing a, a a wound to heal, you know, that murder has a sell by date, people will enter a process of grief, and they will get over it. So in order to keep a, a population terrified, you have to find ways to, as it were, preserve that atrocity in the way that you would find ways to preserve, I don't know, um, bits of bits of a kill uh, by adding salt to them. It was just. It was a. It, as the play says, it was a fantastic use of resources. Uh, how did the idea come to you? Well, I'd wanted to write a play about a harvest for a good uh, ten or fifteen years, which is usually how long I wait before I start writing a, uh, an idea that I've had. I like to give these things a really, really long gestation period. Uh, mostly because I find writing plays incredibly uh, hard and um, and I don't like hard work. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd been hanging on to the idea of a harvest for about that amount of time. And um, it was when I met Laura Donnelly, who plays Caitlin in the play. Uh, it was when I met her on the river, which was my previous play, and she started telling me about her family history. And uh, I think one night we were watching a documentary about the disappeared, and she somewhat nonchalantly pointed out that one of the uh, 18 or 19 people featured in the the show was her uncle. And we got talking about it, and um, it was just kind of one of those subjects that, that gnawed at me, and then uh, eventually about a year after that, uh, we attended the funerals of two of the disappeared who'd been exhumed, and... Uh, it was one of the most dramatic things I've ever witnessed is one of the men, but was really a boy. He was 16 years old when he'd been uh, when he'd been murdered by the IRA. And it was 41 years before. And so all of his contemporaries who were in the cathedral were all in their early 60s, sitting there with their children and their grandchildren running around as his coffin was brought in. And it just hit me uh, that that kind of... Uh, uncertainty for all that time for that family was, was uh, reminded me of the Aeneid and reminded me of the unburied uh, on the banks of the Acheron uh, and, and uh, the fact that that's such a timeless, timeless and haunting image and that it was going on right in front of me.
1: You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Jez Butterworth in just a minute. He says that while writing films comes pretty naturally to him, he finds writing plays uniquely challenging. After the break, he'll tell me why. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to babbel, babbel.com to try Babbel for free. This is Peter Segel from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Sure, you listen to this podcast and all the other NPR podcasts because of how much stuff we know. But what about you? When do you get credit for how smart you are? Well, now you can. The Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz game is now available via your smart speaker. Just ask your smart speaker to
0: open the Wait, Wait quiz, and finally, recognition can be yours.
1: Hi, I am Laurie Kilmartin. And I'm Jackie Kishan. Together, we host a podcast called... The Jackie and Laurie Show. Uh, We're both stand-up comics... We recently met each other because women weren't allowed to work together on the road or in gigs for a long, long time. And so our friendship has been unfolding on this podcast for a couple of years. Jackie constantly works the road. I write for Conan and then I work the road in between. We do a lot of stand up comedy. And so we celebrate stand up and yes. we also bitch about it. We keep it to an hour. We don't have any guests. We somehow find enough to co- talk about every single week. So find us. You can subscribe to the Jackie and Laurie show at MaximumFun.com. Org or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, bye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the writer Jez Butterworth. He's a veteran playwright and screenwriter. His breakout play was 1995's Mojo. In film, he's worked on the James Brown biopic Get On Up, the science fiction film Edge of Tomorrow, even one of the Bond movies. His new play is The Ferryman. It's a story about a family dealing with loss during the conflict in Northern Ireland, the Troubles. It's playing on Broadway now. I want to play a scene from the play. Um, the carnies are all gathered together at the dinner table, and they're about to have their harvest feast, and... Quinn, who's the father, is giving a toast to James Joseph, who's named JJ, who's his eldest son, and to Caitlin, his wife.
3: One day, it won't be my name, it won't be my land, it'll be James Joseph Carney's. Yes, <laughs> James Joseph Carney, stand up. Yep. When these fifty acres are yours, and you're stood where I am with your first harvest in. Young and old at all sides, I want you to remember something. That a man who takes care of his family is a man who can look himself in the eye in the morning. And I hope you find as strong a rock as I have in your ma. To Mary. <laughs> to Mary. Finally, on behalf of this entire clan, I'd like to thank Caitlin for this wonderful food and for everything she's done for this family over the past ten years. To Caitlin. To
2: Caitlin. To Caitlin.
1: There is this tension of what the responsibility of the father is, given who he's been in the past and uh, given the history of his family and his very complicated relationship with his wife and sister-in-law. Um, there's also this kind of feeling like, it feels like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong because I'm making this up, but it feels like in a big family you have both more difference, you know, everybody you have just more people means more different kinds of people even if everyone is in the same family. and yet you also have more responsibility to familyness, less expectation of independence. um For Quinn, he's struggling with all these people that he has these responsibilities to and for. And all the ways that he's being pulled and and trying to reckon with, you know, making the family a unit.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I I feel like the most important dramatic component of that scene is the fact that Quinn and Caitlin have colluded to keep silent the fact that they know that Seamus's body has been found for another 24 hours. And so the whole uh, harvest, uh, this this whole festival takes place with the audience knowing that. That idea that that after 10 years that they decide to, to steal one extra day, uh, is is really what the scene is? I think the scene is about, and everything else that is going on sort of happens in the context of that. I'm not just presenting a a you know a, a, a vibrant family scene and go look, look at the heat that we can create here. It's the, the drama comes from the, from the ghost that's at that feast, and this is a good example because it's kind of like what how a good example of how I write. That actual experience of having to hush up a death for 24 hours is something I was actually called upon to do as a child. And so I'm writing the scene because I've lived through that myself and it was discovered as well in in the way that it's discovered in the play. And so what's a beating at the heart of that is something that I need to uh, reveal. Similarly, the proposal that Tom Kettle uh, makes to Caitlin later on in that scene... Uh, of marriage is something that I overheard somebody doing to my mother at the door of my house uh, four days after my father died, and that man was the character that Tom Kettle is. He was a six foot five, educationally subnormal factotum, and so all of those elements are taken straight out of my life. But I've got to i i, I can't ever really find ways of writing them. I've got to got to wait years to find the right mask that I can put on. So that I can get them out in a way that feels like drama rather than confession.
1: You must also be very mindful of the sort of technical and structural elements, not just because this is such a structurally and technically complex play for, especially for something that's taking place in one room, um, but. Also because, like, that is a big part of your work uh, as a screenwriter is, for one thing, screenwriting is, like, always hyper-structurally aware. But also, uh, like, you go to work on people's screenplays for two weeks at a time sometimes. And often, I imagine, that's just about solving some particular technical challenge that's come up that nobody has a good idea for.
0: I think that can be almost anything that, that going in to do that job I remember once going in and it was two weeks of just talking to an actor to, to get him to do a scene that they'd already written <laughs> I mean you could end up being a script doctor is sometimes literally close to being a doctor you know you can just sit there and listen to to see how how somebody is doing and, and I don't think I've been thanked as much on any job I've ever done as that one where I didn't write a single word Uh, You can be called in to do absolutely anything. It can be write this scene. It can be we don't have a story. It can be this actor isn't happy with this, um, the fact that this other. I remember once being told by an actor where there were two stars in the movie, and he said to me, Jez, what you've got to do here is make my lines better without him noticing and his lines better without me noticing. (laughs) So you know, it's kind of it, you can be called in to do that for all kinds of reasons. But 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 broadly speaking, playwriting and screenwriting, in 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 my experience, don't really have that much to do with one another. I think that, that screenwriting can be a much more conscious, uh, planned event, and playwriting is more, for me at least, is is way more uh, of a process of discovery in the moment and just kind of following your nose. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I remember once I lost a uh, I got burgled once. Someone broke into my flat in London and I lost a laptop and I had half a play and half a screenplay in it and I could I could remember every word of the screenplay and, and and write it out and I could barely remember a word of the play. And so I guess they're just coming from a slightly more I don't know, subconscious, unconscious place. When you were writing The Ferryman, were you conscious of
1: the kind of elements of verisimilitude that ended up in the final production? Like, did you think when you wrote a goose, like, this is going to be a real goose?
0: Yeah, I did. I th- I, th- I think I wanted a real goose and a real uh, baby and real children um, and real rabbits and, 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 and such like. I think we'd had, when we did uh, Jerusalem, I think we had chickens and a tortoise and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and when we did the river there's a fish that gets uh prepared for for a meal and it was one of the most compelling parts of the play i mean i think there is something to it which is uh i've discovered is is kind of uh is a device to make people aware that they're actually sitting there watching this for real i mean it's it's one of the great ways you can describe the difference between theater and film and the fact that you're actually present in front of them is that if you use a real goose on on film, nobody gives a stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, or, or, if, or if a lamp catches fire right at the start of a film, nobody feels a f- slightly afraid that something's gone wrong. And so there's this kind of way of dropping people into the real experience that is a little bit like a conjuring trick. I mean, I got a lot of those ideas from talking to the conjurer... Darren Brown about how you can make people feel unsafe and then safe, and how what that does is that it changes the level of focus. These are all tricks that are available in the theatre that that aren't really available on on film.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Like I, I'm so used to seeing. You know, they don't. There aren't a lot of fake geese in plays, but there are plenty of fake babies in plays. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Like there's plenty of plays that involve a baby whose face never gets turned towards the audience because it's actually right. just a
0: piece of cloth wrapped around right. a log. <laughs> yes. I mean, this, the second the second act of, of The Ferryman starts, I think, with just the baby alone on the stage. That was like an early image that came to mind for me. And then I kind of put it away and, and it fell into place rather rather happily for me. And I think there is a moment where, you know, the lights kind of come up and there's 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 just this small infant alone there that means that the audience who have just been being told to switch off their cell phones and are perhaps finishing their, their interval drink are, th- are thrown right back into the drama.
1: Yeah, I mean, that image particularly doesn't just throw the audience back into the drama, but I think because it's a baby almost implicates and involves the audience you know there's no I way to so. look at a baby alone that doesn't make you feel like you should be taking care of that baby
0: i think that's right and i think that i'm trying all of these different ways to make you feel like you're actually actually there to sort of pull you into a, i guess a sort of a, a responsibility i think that's a very good way good way you just put it you know which is that you do think of it has a has a, an odd effect on on audiences you know i think some some people feel uh put slightly sort of bemused and put out by the fact that you've presented them with something real rather than something um counterfeit i think counterfeit is a lot easier for people to to take i mean i think that theatre's problems don't just end with having to make it good which is incredibly hard most plays aren't but even once they are good, I think audiences sometimes struggle with the elements of plays that present them with things that they feel are perhaps a little too raw. I mean, sometimes I personally struggle watching
1: plays because I feel like everyone is yelling at me. And I say this as a former theater actor.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the going to going to the theater is kind of a, 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 a sucker's game. I think you're most likely going to lose your money and and uh, you know I think you've got you the odds are like ten to one or, or even higher, I think probably a lot higher most of the time. but when you win, because the odds are high, you know you win big i I feel like the animals
1: in the play are as vivid an illustration of the ways that being in person with something can make you feel as anything that happens in the play, because animals are animals. And, you know, you could have had a goose off stage yeah, and then served a real goose that can't move around on its own later when they eat the goose. Yeah. And as an audience member watching a live animal on stage, like it feels as much about hyper realism as it does about realism because you're so aware of the danger of this creature not doing whatever it is that it's you don't know what it's supposed to do but whatever it is that it's supposed to do
0: yeah i mean i, I love that element of danger mark rylance once said to me that the reason he became an actor was that the stage was the only place where nothing could go wrong <laughs> <laughs>
1: in the sense that there's a in the sense that there's a script and you
0: know that it will resolve at the end of the play. What can you imagine that goose possibly doing that the audience wouldn't love if it all went wrong? You know, imagine that he loses his grip on it and it runs into the audience flapping. I mean, that is one of the most wonderful things you could pay money to see. <laughs> yeah, sold. <laughs> I'm there, baby. Nothing can go wrong. <laughs>
1: Oh man, the new title of the play is Wild Goose Chase and <laughs> I give it five stars. <laughs> you know, you you described how difficult you find it to start a play, how long it takes you to put the pieces together in your head yeah. to sit down and write. Um, have there been times when you were worried that, it, that the ability to do that had left you completely?
0: Yeah, I think... Um... When I had written my first play, Mojo, in the ensuing years, I wasn't sure how to start a play. And I felt at that point, oh, God, that's that. I haven't really felt it since then. You have to hold hold your nerve. It's kind of like... Because you're not in control, because cause there is no, m- no mysterious... It's like if you were trying to catch a cold, say, for instance, you could stand... On your roof in the rain, you know, all day, and and you know, you you might get ill, but you won't definitely get ill. You know, it's it's because it's not a process you are in charge of. You kind of just have to trust it eventually. And also, the, the same in the same breath, if nothing comes again, then you are only in the position that everybody else is in. <laughs> you know. It's, What's so bad about that?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think that there is something to the experience that wanting to control inspiration is not a great way to generate inspiration.
0: I think that's absolutely correct. In my, in my experience, I think that's right. Uh, I, wherever these things come from, running around with a butterfly net trying to catch them doesn't work but that also requires
1: a kind of extraordinary vigilance because it's very easy when you're when you let yourself off the hook in that way i know this from my own experience when you let yourself off off the hook in that way it's very easy to just lose whatever focus you had on recognizing inspiration when it arrives i think that's
0: absolutely right i think that's that's bang on i think that the you know, if you're you're not in a phase of your life where you're you are alive and awake to or, or or desperately needing, without necessarily knowing, needing to find some expression of something that is haunting you that you need to express, then if you're not in that kind of a, a register, then these things won't happen along. I remember hearing a a friend of mine was working on a documentary with michael jackson shortly before he died and jackson was rehearsing for his upcoming tour which never happened by day and he was writing songs at night and this guy who was working with him said you know why don't you just take some time off from the songwriting and rest and come back to it after the tour and he said uh um i won't i now won't attempt to do a michael jackson impersonation okay but what 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 michael apparently said was he said no i can't do that because then god will give those songs to prince <laughs> and i think that's absolutely true i think he's telling the absolute truth
1: <laughs> wow that's a punchline you could eat out on for the next 20 years <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's it's it, in all seriousness though joking aside I think that it's it it demonstrates the, the 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 point that unless you've got your antennae in the air and you're trying to trying to, as you say be be vigilant that's all you can do you can't force it you can't push it you can just be vigilant
1: Well Jess Butterworth we're out of time but I sure appreciate you coming on Bullseye to talk to me it was really great
0: thank you that was uh, immensely enjoyable cheers
1: Jez Butterworth. His new play is called The Ferryman. It's playing on Broadway. I have to say, I went into it pretty skeptical, and I came out totally enraptured. The show's run has been extended until July 7th of this year. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters. Overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where Kevin, my producer, uh, saw a bird on the lake, specifically a coot, standing on a floating palm frond. Like it wasn't a palm frond at all, but rather a little boat. That's very fun. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien here at the office. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Great band. Thanks to them for letting us use it. And did you know that we have been making this show for over 15 years? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. We're all careening toward our deaths. You can listen to all of them on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
3: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.